Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Kate Campbell, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It's good to be back, Owen. It is indeed. We are talking uh, Q&A. This month's Q&A, we have lots of questions around investing, some ethical investing stuff, some REIT stuff, REITs, if you've heard of them. Lots of um, interesting questions from the Facebook community. Yeah, some good follow-ons as well from our ethical investing episode the other day. Um, so this episode, we're going we're gonna to feature some questions from the community inside Facebook. So if you're not already on that, jump in and it's the easiest way to share questions. We get so many great questions through email at podcast at rast.com.au. So many that we can't keep up. Um, so the easiest thing for you to do is to jump into the Facebook group, um, ask your question, we'll try to pick up on it. Um, and if we don't get to it, others will. Yeah. It's a good way to crowdsource wisdom as well and get tips and suggestions from a whole range of people. Yeah. There's um, a particular new format to the podcast, um, that I'm hoping to bring in. I don't know if I've won Kate over yet, (laughs) but, um, I'm hoping to bring it in and the the group's going to be a play a pivotal role in that. So, um, please jump in there. Okay, so just for disclaimer, we are answering questions, but when we do answer questions, it is strictly and absolutely limited to general financial advice only. We don't have a clue what you ate for breakfast, the name of your dog, your financial situation, or whether you have Vegemite on toast or you put avocado on it as well. But seriously, this is a disclaimer. And um, if you're confused about any of the answers that we give, you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional who can take into account your needs, goals, or objectives because we can't. Um, And as always, if we mention ETFs in particular or super or um, bank accounts, go and read the PDS. It's called a product disclosure statement. It's so much fun, Kate. Lots of pages of legal jargon in there. Yeah. I reckon you'd like it. Yeah. Well, I might enjoy it, but uh, I know a lot of people do not like reading product disclosure (laughs) statements. Um, And we've also done many episodes on those topics. So if you're brand new to the podcast today, go back and listen to the first 10 episodes of the show and you'll get a good sort of grounding of the basics of personal finance that we'll be talking about. Yeah. And you did actually do a recent article on how to read a PDS for the Risk Education site, which is good. So you can go check that out if you don't know what you're looking for. Um, okay, so we did an ethical investing episode recently. We've got the ethical investing course on risk education. Um, not as much uptake as the fire course. The fire course is super popular, so well done. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't want to retire early, Owen? <laughs> it's know, a maybe, bit more exciting. Maybe ethical investing has some connotations. I don't know, but it's um, it's great to see that if like quite a few hundred people have already enrolled in the ethical investing course. You know, a lot more have enrolled in the fire course, which is fantastic. Um Just go ahead and and enroll in the course if you want to um, brush up on any of the basics that we talk about in the first question. And I mean, even if you don't want to put yourself into the so-called ethical box, just doing the course is a great um, prompt to think about the way you invest and the companies you want to invest in and your own values. Because at the end of the day, investing in money is such a personal thing. So it's really good to think more deeply about what you're doing and why you're doing it. It adds to that sleep at night factor that we always always talk about. I I like being able to go to sleep and not worry about what my investment portfolio is doing in the US or Australia and get up the next morning and live my life without having to check my app every day. 
actually, Kate, I've got to mention this before we get to the first question. Sorry, listeners, I know you want us to get to the questions, but Emma reached out to me on um, Instagram and said that she loves the Devil's Advocate episodes. She's in um, my side of the, the ring. So um, we'd love to hear from you if you like a particular format that Kate and I do, the Q&As, like just let us know. Send us an email, jump in the Facebook group, send us a message, whatever. Okay, so Kate, first question. Um, maybe did you want to read it off? Yeah, so did you want to get stuck into the ethical alternatives to VDHG? Yeah, sure. Okay, so this question's from Angela in our Facebook community and she's keen to do the ethical investing, of course. She's just applied to a broker and has been considering investing in VDHG, which is Vanguard's High Growth Diversified Fund. It's I think we mentioned it in our Robo Investing the other week, but it's like a one-size-fits-all question. Um, uh, not question, what am I talking about? One size fits all ETF investment that kind of gives you a bit of exposure to Australia and overseas and a bit of everything. Uh, but she wanted to know if there is an ethical alternative to that. So VDHD is a diversified ETF. That means it invests in other ETFs. So you buy one ETF and it gets you exposure to a whole heap. Um, we talked about VDHG quite a bit in the Robo Advice Debate um, episode, so you can go back and listen to that. Okay, so alternatives to VDHG. So VDHG doesn't provide any ethical overlay. It just invests in stocks from Australia in global markets and bonds primarily. Okay, so great work, Angela, on thinking about ethical investing as, um, I guess, a way to complement your investing. One of the, the questions that we had in the Facebook group was kind of critical slash cynical about it costing you money to invest ethically. I think if you do the course, you'll find that it's actually the opposite. Ethical investing, that's just the label that so many people apply to it. So that's what we're using for jargon's sake. But ethical investing actually has been proven to make more money for investors. Now, that is a critical insight that so many people are missing. It's not about being green, you know, peace symbols, loving all the hippies. It's actually about just investing better. So if you think about that, why not incorporate it into your process? Okay, so an alternative to VDHD. I would say... An alternative is the DZZF ETF from BetaShares. Yeah, so that's the BetaShares Ethical Diversified High Growth ETF. Quite a mouthful there. Yeah, so there's the, the, the few key phrases in these ETFs you need to understand are high growth. So that means that it's more in the risky investments like shares versus, say, bonds. And diversified means that's when you know that it invests in other ETFs. So that name, diversified, means it doesn't just invest in individual stocks or individual bonds, or individual or gold, it invests in other things like ETFs. So diversified high growth, you can get diversified balance, diversified conservative, whatever you want. Beta shares are the first ones that have come out with um, a diversified ethical option. Um, there are some limits to these ethical ETF, uh, these diversified ETFs in the sense that some of them are actually not diversified because they have 100% of the investments in shares. So I can't really just, I personally, I don't think that's diversified. So keep that in mind. So yeah, you can use the DZZF ETF. Um, I'm sure the Vanguard will launch something like that soon. Oh, they have to. Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be, if you just keep your eye out, there'll be other ETF providers are going to jump on this bandwagon as well. To be honest, I'm surprised more um, ETF providers haven't done a diversified fund. We know the guys from ETF Securities. I'd love to see if they would do a diversified ETF of their own. Um, Vanguard, you know, maybe incorporate some more ethical stuff, even BlackRock, um, Spider. Like, we need more of these because they're actually such a great product. I just think they're fantastic for beginner investors. And it gives consumers more choice, which is great. Yeah. Like, I know Vanguard have a couple of their own ethically conscious, I think they're, are they socially conscious, what they call them? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Like ETFs for Australian shares, international shares and bonds. So you can always sort of build your own portfolio 
using that kind of thing that Vanguard and other ETF providers have. So that's, I guess that's another alternative to VDHG if you want an ethical overlay of sorts. Yep, absolutely it is, Kate. And so then we have, um, just as an option, we're going to not, we're going to just stray outside of ETFs, Angela. Um, obviously you've got individual stocks. So we talk about in the ethical course, as you know, five different strategies to identify companies that you want to invest in. I guess the same token, things that you don't want to invest in. Um, but that can come after you build out your core exposure. So we talk about the core being the largest rock in your portfolio. You build that up first and then you can do these satellites um, that revolve around the outside. Another option is obviously there are super funds that do ethical investing if that's your flavor. Obviously there are differences between super and ETFs in terms of accessing the money. Um, I think Kate, you had a note here about Australian ethical as well. Yeah, so um, I guess another option that we I don't think we discussed in the other episode on ethical investing, but um, there are managed funds um, that provide ethical investing overlays in their approach. There's a lot of small boutique ones out there that I've come across, but there's also Australian Ethical. So they've got about seven different managed funds that have ethical overlays from international shares fund to advocacy funds to even I think as a a bond fixed interest fund. Um, Although some of them quite have have quite a small amount of funds under management, um, which may, may mean they're not like commercially viable that yeah. long. But the thing is, they, as you note in the um, little bit of DD that we did here, um, they do have higher management fees. So I've spoken to the guys at Australian Ethical. Um, one of their funds is quite expensive. I won't name which one it is, but it's actually, in my opinion, very expensive but it's been good enough to justify those fees. But it's very hard to know that in advance, right? And so my belief is that no one should have to pay extra to have some sort of ethical overlay because it doesn't actually take that much work on the investor's behalf to, to factor that in. So um, just be mindful of that. And obviously, Angela, when we're talking about managed funds, those are different to the super funds. Um, even though they might follow the same strategy, from a tax perspective, from an access perspective, those things do influence your decisions. So take all that into account. Always read the PDS. And um, we're just providing some general advice here. So um, there was actually another question here, Kate, that came through. And I don't know who asked it. So apologies to whoever did. It's a fantastic question to follow on from that one, which is what are the investment risks behind so-called, and air quotes, unethical companies that are worth considering. So the risks associated with unethical companies, such as a general risk to look out for, regardless of being an ethical investor, et cetera. What if you can't find the right ETF that suits because of their overlay, in air quotes, um, ethical overlays, don't align with yours? I think there were two different questions, but I sort of picked up on those uh, lines of questioning from the Facebook group after our episode, but it was more interesting to see. I think um, ethical investing really makes you think about those long-term risks that can affect a company. And that's what, I mean, I think when I think about the environmental, social and governance impacts, is the company doing things that are going to cause damage over the long term? Um, Is it, has it got a really undiversified board? So maybe they're not picking up on all the trends and innovation and doing what they can do to stay viable over a long term horizon. I mean, that's kind of the things that I would be looking out for just as a, yeah. a normal investor that doesn't know much. Well, one of the criticisms, that's a really good point. One of the criticisms that I hear of ethical investing, and this comes from people who are supposedly investment experts, they say, oh, ethical investing is just high quality investing, meaning that by investing ethically, you're focusing on sustainable companies, which then means that you're picking higher quality companies because to invest in your portfolio, to have in your portfolio. Um, yes, that's true because to your point, you're finding companies that you believe are sustainable. Mm. It doesn't necessarily make you an ethical investor. It just means that you're investing in good companies. Yeah. And I guess there's a difference in sustainable there. Is it like sustainable for the world and the environment or just sustainable as a company as in 
they're going to be able to sustain operations for a long period of time. Totally. And so I'd say some of the risks of investing in unethical companies, um, it's very hard for us to define unethical, right? That's in the the eyes of the beholder, I guess. But um, I guess some of the things you need to be aware of is that um, they'll probably face increasing regulation. Um, So Alan Collar, actually, I don't normally mention Alan Collar. I've got to admit, I'm not the biggest fan of his work. I can I can say that. That's my opinion. But he actually wrote a really good piece for the New Daily this week. Um, yeah, and effectively, one of the things that he said in that, which I'll um, parrot here, is that, you know, it's not a debate. This is not political. Climate change is actually a science, right? People are making it political. It's a real thing. And so if you're investing in companies that are contributing to, you know, excess carbon, you've got to ask yourself when will we make a decision to increase regulation? At the moment, governments, most governments around the world have taken the stance that kind of let's make it um, kind of, you know, proactive policy to let business decide. Let's create energy carbon markets where you can trade credits and whatever um, to make it, to get them to think in a way that's like capitalistic. And yes, that might work, but I think there are no specific risks to all quote-unquote unethical companies. This is just my view, but you just want to make sure that you're finding sustainable companies and that you factor in the possibility for higher regulation and costs going forward. You know, I try to invest for 10 to 20 years out into the future and I find it very hard to believe that we're not going to see increased regulation in regards to like climate change initiatives, carbon emissions, um, or reusability of things. Um, so there's no, this is a fantastic question you bring up, Kate, but I just don't, I don't think there's any specific risk. I just think when you go through your business and your investing checklist, just make sure that you've considered it, mm. considered what could change in the industry, what, what happens upstream. So when a company creates a widget or product, where do they get their resources from? Who do they need to rely on to get that? Um, to then create their own product to then sell to consumers. If things happen upstream, um, so if things happen before the company you know, makes its widgets, then the business might fail because of something outside of its control. So looking at the supply chain. Supply chain, exactly. That's the right way to put it. So um, consider that. Um, in terms of can't find the right ETF that suits because of the ethical overlays, one of the things that came out of our survey is that you don't have to have everything in your portfolio is ethical or sustainable or whatever. Most people in our survey of investors said that even part of their portfolio is still a great step. So that's the thing. Like if you're facing like huge tax bills, if you sell an ETF or a stock or whatever the case might be, it's still good to try and have some of your portfolio um, invested in a sustainable way. Yeah, you don't have to do it all at once. It yeah. could be you building your portfolio over time to be the representation of what you want the future yeah. to be. Like you mentioned that other episode, don't just uh, go cold turkey and sell everything yeah, um, and just make a complete transformation. And uh, yeah, so that's probably something I'd think about. Yeah, and one thing I'll just add on here is that, yes, there are very few, we just mentioned there are very few ethical ETFs. You can go to the best ETFs website. Um, we've created a page there of all the ethical ETFs in Australia. Um, but there are more coming. There will be more coming. Um, even the ethical, even the ETFs that we have currently, I believe, in the next three to five years, will start to put an ethical overlay on those "quote unquote" vanilla ETFs. So you will have more options in time. So you can start with something, um, and ov- obviously, you still have the choice of individual shares. Find companies that you th- think are doing good, or just avoiding doing bad, and support them by investing in them. 
you know, as pr- provided they're a good investment, don't just go and buy something because it's promising, it's greenwashing everything. Um, yeah, but that's, that, that's just some fantastic questions there. Go check out the ethical investing course and, and send us in your questions or ask them in the Facebook group. And I think it's always good to look at the holdings of an ETF because whatever the label says, you might find companies in there that you go, hey, this yeah. definitely doesn't gel with my view of what things should be. So this is just not the right product for me. And I think they brought up the example of Nestle. Um, someone in the group, yeah, yeah, that was um, fantastic. Been in yeah. one of the one of the ETFs, and to them, that wasn't maybe quite an ethical company, um, and so that might not have been the right ETF for them. So it's really good to have a look, and even with managed funds and your super fund as well. Some of the, I think. Future Super definitely gave a list when I had a look yeah, um, of every single individual holding, which is pretty rare for a super fund. Yeah, they did. I think they yeah. even listed like the buildings they owned. Yeah. So that was quite transparent disclosure for, for a super fund. You can actually, um, so for those of you that are with, say, for example, Australian Super or Host Plus, there are parts of your, the websites where you can see the underlying holdings. You have to go in, I can't remember the exact user experience, but it's something like investments, um, portfolios and it's got like daily updates and then you have to dig through to like which strategy you're in and then you can kind of see it. Download a holding list of sorts. Yeah. And maybe even ask them like they might, yeah, it might not you. be something they have on the website, but they might provide it on request. Yeah, that's it. Um, and again, you know, it's probably not going to be perfect because we talked about the differences between ethical and sustainable investing. If ethical investing is more your personal taste, where sustainable investing is probably like good for the world and good for the community and good for the company and stakeholders, etc. They're two different things. So, you might have to just sacrifice that if you're going into an ETF or you're going into a super fund that you're trying to invest sustainably and not exactly in line with your ethics. Um, you can do that. You know, you can you can be direct with your super. But anyway, um, this it, that's a great question. Wonderful. If you want to continue the conversation, jump into the Facebook group. Um, so next question comes through. Um, and basically, it's from it's Joe from Insta. Yes. Yeah. Instagram DMs. We get a few questions there. It's great. So hi, Ras team. I have done some of your courses and signed up for the ETF membership. Go, Joe. Uh, The thing I'm not sure about is do we continue to invest in the same ETFs for a period of time, like the five recommended as part of the thematic portfolio for, say, 12 months? Or is it more about accumulating different shares slash ETFs? I guess it comes back to (laughs) getting your portfolio as big as possible or just kind of keeping it small and concise. And I think there's also, I think we've talked about before of how many ETFs is too many ETFs. Yeah. Um, it can get a bit hard to manage once you've got more than about five or six different ETFs. Mm. But I guess with the thematic ETFs coming out, when you might have your core portfolio of three or four ETFs and suddenly you could have a thematic ETF for robotics and a thematic for healthcare and one yeah. for genetics and all sorts of things thematic ETF. So your portfolio could suddenly start to balloon out quite a lot. Yeah. So this is a great question, Joe. So Joe, so Joe is obviously a member of our ETF service and um, where we have the different portfolios. So we've got four different portfolios, but one of them can kind of be changed around. And so the way we created the thematic portfolio was, um, oh, and by the way, a thematic ETF is something that kind of does something not vanilla. You're following a theme or yeah, a trend theme. or an yeah, idea. Yeah, your theme, like cloud computing, technology, um, healthcare, whatever. And we did an episode on that a while back with Kanish from ETF Securities. Yeah, that's that If you're interested in thematic ETFs, that's a good one. And obviously these are the ones, these are the ETFs, we, we, say, we believe that they are the highest risk because they're the ones that even though they might show great charts, they're actually the least proven and they're probably the ETFs that are most likely to be highly volatile, so lots of ups and downs, have higher fees. The, the companies behind them, the ETF providers, actually push them really hard because they have 
um, more fees to earn if they push them really hard as opposed to like A200 or VAS or insert really boring ETF that really has been around for a while. Um, so yes, you can have as many as you like. Um, our thematic portfolio was built around trying to capture the best expressions of each of the different themes that we, we, we believe were important. So Max, who did the research, looked at each of the big themes, so like cloud computing, healthcare, technology, um, all these different sectors and themes and try to define what is the best exposure to that theme. And so, you know, we've got a few ETFs in there. Um, I would say that when you're building this portfolio, um, the thematic portfolio is a higher risk portfolio. And it's probably for me like a anywhere between a three and seven or three and 10 year view. So be mindful that it is more volatile, slightly high fees, not as long-term um, as say the, as the core, like I'm just going to use an example, VDHG, um, where I would be viewing that as if I'm going to hold that for 20 years. And so keep that in mind when you think about portfolio construction. Okay, I've got some actually interesting things here. So I'm going to, this is something that I haven't talked about with our ETF members, and I'm actually going to include this in the future, is you could have, say, five to 10 ETFs, right? I probably wouldn't want to go too far beyond that just because it gets, you know, from I experience, tax and tax time. Yeah, you're going to have to find 10 plus different statements. And, yeah. And then suddenly they don't all show up on the one page on your ComSec screen. You've got to start scrolling down. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden you have to select more. <laughs> um, so, okay. So I just want to quickly go over this, Kate. I know we we're trying to keep this one short, but um, so there are effectively two different types of investments you can make, whether it's a share or whether it's an ETF or a managed fund or super. You effectively have growth assets aka risky assets. And then you have defensive, aka mostly should have been income, but in the modern world, they're not income, they're just defensive. So in growth, imagine that bucket with a seedling in it. We've got shares, Australian shares, we've got international shares, and we've got most of our thematic ETFs. They would go in that bucket. Now in the defensive bucket, what I would put in there, every financial planner or whatever is different, um, in the defensive bucket, I would say we have fixed income like bond ETFs, Gold, like gold ETFs, ETFs that invest in cash, any of your f- fancy term deposits, uh, property ETFs, REITs, which we're just about to talk about, those things go in the defensive bucket. So that's like, just think of bricks, like really strong foundations of your portfolio. So bricks and seedlings. So now, then we have our long-term strategy. We've got to define what our risk profile is, but I'm just going to say that someone is balanced. So meaning they're like, they don't have to retire for at least 10 years or they're not going to leave the, need the money for 10 years. Remember that, 10 years. And they're quite comfortable in their knowledge of investing. So how would that work out? How much would you put in the seedling bucket? How much would you put in the bricks bucket? I would have 60% of my money in the growth seedling bucket. So that's like shares and all that. And I would have 40% in the other bucket. All right. That's what in academic theory, that's what we're taught is a balanced portfolio. Now, I, in the modern age with lower interest rates, I think it needs to be slightly higher, maybe 70 in growth, 30 in bricks or defensive. And the reason I say that is because most people that listen to this podcast aren't in retirement. If you were in retirement, you'd put more in the defensive bucket. Anyway, so let's say we've got 70-30. Now, what we do with that is we then say, okay, how can we build a portfolio out of 70% of this and 30% of that? ETFs are a very easy way to do that. You could do managed funds. I wouldn't include the primary residence, so the home in this, that's separate. I would say maybe an investment property would be in maybe in defensive, so keep that in mind, but that's how I would think about it. Yeah, as soon as you add your property into these calculations, it would completely warp it. So it's probably better to do it excluding that. And I see property as a lifestyle asset if you live in it, um, whereas if it's an investment, it's an investment. 
that's what you should be treating it as, after costs, preferably. Um, and I also wouldn't include emergency cash in this. So some people believe that emergency cash is there to invest when the time comes. I don't think it is. I think emergency cash is there literally just for emergencies. So someone like you, Kate, or myself, younger people employed, um, I would say six months of living expenses in cash. And then if you're approaching retirement two to three years, you know, maybe even more, two to three years of living expenses in cash. It's shit. I can say that. It is terrible right now because interest rates are really low. And it's going to be painful to look at $200,000 if you're a retiree in cash and you think, geez, I'm making nothing on that. Yeah. <laughs> it could be less uh, soon. But separating so, that from your investment portfolio because if you suddenly add that in, suddenly your portfolio might be swinging a lot more defensive yeah. than it's than you're hoping it to be. So like yeah. taking out all of that. Just keep it simple. Pretty much what's in your, your stockbroking account and your super fund, basically. You might even have a different strategy for your super fund because that might not be touched for 20 or 30 years. Okay, so now I just want to go one step deeper and ha- how this all relates to the question. Um, rebalancing, which is something we don't talk about a lot on the podcast, is effectively if you know that your rule is 70% growth and 30% defensive or bricks, there will come times where the growth grows faster than the bricks And there will come times when the stock market crashes and the growth falls. And what happens at that time is your 70-30 balance or whatever balance you decide is out of whack. By the way, Vanguard in the USA has a free risk profiling tool you can use um, to determine what might be the right thing for you. not saying you normally have to see a financial planner for that and that's Vanguard's thing, but I'm just letting you know. When it goes out of balance, you have to have a rule set in advance to say, okay, my goal is 70-30 for the next 20 years, but it's now at, you know, 80-20. I need to fix that up. I need to get that balance right. So then you might consider putting more into a particular bucket or you might say, I'm going to sell some of this and put it in there. So how this all ties back to how many ETFs you need, I don't think it's about how many ETFs, how many shares necessarily. Like as long as you're comfortable in managing that, to your point, Kate, that's okay. But the important thing is you know effectively what your risk profile is, which is really, really hard to do in advance. Really hard. That's why you need expert advice unless you are really, really, really confident in what you know and in your behavior. The behavior is the part that people screw up. Yeah. I mean, most people think they're high risk investors till they're not. That's the famous saying, right? Like, I'm so glad you said that. Um, We're all high growth investors until the next market crash. You know, imagine COVID, things were down 30%. Yeah. And a lot of people were freaking out. How many people went to cash? Yeah, it's 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 quite scary. And how many people are still in cash in their super fund now after changing it last year? And it's up like 30%, just even the Australian market's up 30%. You know, it's crazy. So that's why you need to have, the, you need to think about these things now. This is what we call an investment policy statement, IPS. You would set the rules in advance. So in the ethical course we talked about in a download, we had select the boxes that matter to you, like child exploitation, pornography, uh, whatever. I don't want those in my portfolio. You can do the same thing with your investment strategy overall. So you might say, I want no more than 10 ETFs in my portfolio. I don't want um, SIN stocks in my portfolio. I'm going to keep six, uh, six months worth of living expenses. I'm not going to touch my money for X amount of years. If my balance is out by 10%, I rebalance. So not when, not every six months, but when that happens. Does that make sense? So it's, you're not timing it. You're just saying, this is the rule. If it goes out of balance, then I rebalance, regardless of what the market's doing. But you don't want to do that rebalancing too often or you're going to incur uh, tax events and, and was, a- additional fees. That was the, one of the questions that we had in the Rask Invest live stream the other day. Um, the question was, well, the VDHG ETF is constantly rebalancing or like regularly rebalancing. 
does that create tax events? And yeah, it probably does, but um, that's a fair question. So yeah, I would say like you could reassess it. If you haven't rebalanced, at least reassess your portfolio every six months. You probably don't want to do it every more than that. Um, because then you create a lot of tax and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Or you might see there might be a specific market event that makes yeah. it more sensible to rebalance. Say, oh, you put, your rebalance wasn't for a couple of months, but hey, the market's fallen 20%. Oh, it might be a good time to add additional funds to a yeah. certain portion of your portfolio. And I think writing down these rules of what you're going to do with your portfolio makes it a lot easier to uh, stay calm in high stress situations, like having it written down, like this is my emergency fund. I'm keeping it in this account and I'm not going to touch it. All of the things that Owen mentioned, having that written down is very helpful and sticking to your plan. I mean, I have like my sort of financial plan and goals for the year, even just written down on a piece of paper, pen and paper. I do it in January and I stick it on a pin board and then I sort of see how I'm tracking each month towards my goals. And that makes it really visible for me. Um, instead of just having some Google Doc, um, I've actually got it in front of me so I can sort of review it on a regular basis. And that's, you know, that's why it's so fantastic to go see a financial planner. Not only are they experts and can answer your little questions, but they actually write the document out for you. Mm-hmm. That's their job, right? Yeah. So you can either choose to go see a financial planner or you can attempt to do it yourself by educating yourself and doing that. I probably haven't done it enough in terms of my personal portfolio structure. As you know, I'm not the type of person that sits down with my personal net wealth I think from one day to the next, full disclosure, most of my personal wealth is tied to our business. Um, the RAS so business. It's very liquid. <laughs> it's very liquid. It's going up and down every day depending on my mood. So, <laughs> um, but I think that this is one of the easiest steps people can do. Just This is called an IPS. You can Google it or you could literally just get a piece of paper and write the five rules for your investing overall. You don't have to have goals on there, just rules. Like I'm going to rebalance this. This is how much I'm going to put in ETFs. This is how much I'm going to do that. And just stick to it. Last thing on this before we get to the final question, the single best time to rebalance is around a market crash, which is exactly the time when people don't want to rebalance. Because they might be losing their jobs, they're freaking out. They're scared. Like in March last year, there was a lot going on apart from the market crashing. So a lot of people, even myself, I just cancelled my trip, I'd be made redundant. It wasn't really the time for me to make big investments, even though – I mean, theoretically, it was a great time to invest and um, buy stocks when they were 30% down. It just wasn't the right time in my life. So you might, everything might sort of seem good in theory, but a lot of these times when the market crashes do happen, it's not the right time. That's why you need these rules. So it tells you, this is what um, past Kate said to me to do. And if you just think about that, right, like in that COVID crash is what I'm calling it, um, Stocks fell 30%. So your balance from 70, 30, I haven't done the math, but it might have become like 50, 50 if if that was the case, right? Because the defensive ones wouldn't have fallen as far. And so it might've gone to 50, 50. So then imagine if you took the 20% and you pushed it back into stocks and then it went up 30%. All of a sudden, that single change, you didn't time the market. You just thought, oh, my portfolio's out of balance. I'll rebalance it. All of a sudden, that is now 30% greater than it would have been if it was stuck in those defensive assets or worse if it was in cash. And that is an example of, you know, just setting those rules in advance. And so this is a thing, guys, if you actually have the rules, you're more likely to make a good choice. Um, And when you make the plan, when you have a plan in a crisis, you're more likely to feel more comfortable. So 
you know, there's a behavioral you've got nudge to, If you've well. got to act well. like your own robo-advisor, they just will rebalance yeah. when funds are added, rain, hail, or shine. They don't care about what the market's doing, what your emotions are doing. So you've got to become your own robo-advisor through setting your rules out. Yeah, that's it. So I did a podcast with financial planners, um, Jamie Nemsis and Drew Meredith, who work in our office. Um, you can check that out on the Australian Investors Podcast. It was published in April, I believe. Okay, so what are REITs and how do they work? Great question from Luke in the Facebook community. Um Kate, what does REIT stand for? Real Estate Investment Trusts. And I don't know if we've talked about them since our beginning 10 episodes of the podcast. Yeah, the very first 10 or 11 episodes are the first episodes everyone should listen to because they're the foundational episodes. It's Uh, been a while. It's been a long time between REITs. (laughs) I haven't even thought about them much, actually. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, So REITs. Um, REITs invest in property. And infrastructure. And infrastructure, yep. So... Think about not your house, but think about big buildings in Melbourne, Sydney, Perth, Adelaide, Brisbane, wherever you are. Think about big buildings. Yeah. Just like walking down the street, Collins Street in Melbourne, yep. looking George at street, all Sydney, of those wherever you are. buildings and going, hey, someone actually owns them. It might be a real estate investment trust. It might be a Australian billionaire. It could be your super fund. Super yep. funds own a lot of these buildings as well. But Someone with a lot of money has to own these and sometimes real estate investment trusts are the way you can get exposure to these massive buildings, to warehouses that are probably not in the city but a bit further out. You'll see massive warehouses, uh, maybe student accommodation. They own a whole heap of different large property infrastructure. Yeah, totally. And so the easiest way to explain what a real estate is, a real estate investment trust is, is to give you an example. So BWP Trust, I believe Barefoot talked about this in his book, BWP Trust is one of the biggest um, REITs on the ASX, the Australian stock market. By the way, you just buy REITs like you would any other shares in your brokerage car. So BWP Trust um, owns 75 commercial properties. So commercial properties, um, meaning big like warehouses or whatever. They're all around Australia. Most of those, not all of them, but most of those properties have a Bunnings warehouse on them. You know a Bunnings, big green shed with some red writing on it. Our favorite store during yes, COVID. Yes, you have to get the the card to get in. So BWP Trust was owned by Wes Farmers, which is the same company that owns Bunnings. But in 1998, Wes Farmers said, we have this beautiful business, which is Bunnings, but we also own all the land, like the property that we have to put on our balance sheet. And we have debt that we want that's on the balance sheet as well. Why don't we just wrap those things up? So we've got the property and we've got the mortgage, just like your house and a mortgage. And we'll just put that in a separate company. And people that want to invest in that company can go and buy that. Um, the other difference is it's not a company, it's called a trust, um, which I'll get to in just a minute. So in 1998, and I've got a funky photo of people wearing some weird jeans from 1998. Um, in 1998, the company was separated from the trust, which is BWP. And so in this case, some of the debt was taken over to BWP. And what happens is Bunnings pays rent to BWP who owns the properties. So BWP is like the landlord and Bunnings is like the tenant. But Bunnings is obviously a really good tenant. They're not going to be late on their rent. They're a really good business, right? So these are long-term leases. And so that happens. And today, BWP has grown as Bunnings has grown and they've taken over more of the properties. BWP now earns um, $154 million a year in rent, right? So these are big businesses, right? So they're not just like an investment property you have around the corner. A bigger example of a REIT is a company called Center Group. Center spelled S-C-E-N-T-R-E. And if you've looked at the holdings of your 
ASX 200 ETF or your super fund, you've probably seen that name pop up. Yep. Centre Group is the name for the owner of the Westfield Shopping Centres in Australia. So all of those properties owned by Centre Group. So this is far bigger than BWP because these properties are worth a lot. Um, now, the thing is, when you invest in one of these things, you're not it's not a company, it's a trust. So you're typically getting a unit. That's what you might see on your brokerage account or a stapled security, which is a combination of um, units, if you like. So you're getting these things called units and they effectively, you get an ownership interest or a beneficial interest in all the rent that's created inside that, as well as the growth of the properties over time. So coming to the end of this, Kate, but the thing that people um, often know about REITs is there's something called NTA, which stands for Net Tangible Assets or uh, if you just want to think about it, the value of the properties less the debt. So um, Centre Group, BWP have billions of dollars of property, right? So what they do is they break it down. They say, we have billions of dollars of property, but we also have millions of shares. So what we'll do is we'll divide the value of our properties by how many shares we have. And so you can understand what is the property value per share. That's what NTA is. So most people use that the NTA, because it compares the share price that you see in your brokerage account against the value of the properties. So they go price to NTA. And investors then just determine, well, if the properties are worth this much and i buying the shares for this much, then that means they're under or overvalued. That's pretty much why that happens. But it's not always the case. You don't go up to a property in the street and go, oh, I can buy that for 700000 but I think it's worth six hundred, So it's overvalued. I'm not going to do that. You don't really think that way, but yet, we try and make it easy for people in investing. So that's a primer. Any questions? I think that confused me a little bit. Okay. So, <laughs> so are you saying they're more like exchange traded funds where the unit price is based on the value of the holdings or they're more like listed investment companies where the um, price you pay is based on what everyone else wants to pay? Okay. So I would say they're more like listed investment companies. So this is where we're going to be geeky, ladies and gentlemen. When you invest in an ETF, this is the beauty of ETFs. It's almost always at NTA. So what I mean by that is the share price is almost always in line with the value of whatever is inside it, okay? So you're getting what you pay for. Yeah, but with LICs, LICs, which you probably see, it can go all over the place. Mm, and they can trade at a premium or a discount to what it's actually worth. To NTA, exactly. And that often depends on how hot that lick is at the moment yeah, because exactly. maybe the fund manager just did a big road show. Yeah, how hot that lick is. That's Don't repeat that outside of investing, <laughs> that phrase. <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, so licks have a portfolio that's managed by a fund manager and you can buy and sell the shares in that lick. In the same way with a real estate investment trust, you can do the same. Someone is managing the trust. Someone is managing the properties that BWP holds. Someone is managing the Westfield shopping centers, right? But you can get an ownership interest in the properties. So what can happen is typically, I believe a REIT needs to be independently valued by an expert property valuer every year. So I think it's at least every year. So meaning that an expert from some consulting company goes out and says, Kate, I think your property's worth this much. And then you, because you're the you're the REIT, you then go to your shareholders and you say, this is how much our property's worth. And then that's the NTA for the year. But then they also do 
um, revaluations, internal revaluations. So the directors will will get an expert inside their business to go and value the properties, and they'll say, "This is how much the rent is. This is, these are how long our leases are for. This is our occupancy rate." Um, so this is the valuation. Now we can get really geeky, but if you want to go further down this rabbit hole, go and Google something called the capitalization rate, which is effectively just is how they determine the valuations. Um, so it's more like a lick, but it's similar to the ETF in terms of. When you buy it, you're not just getting a share in a business, you're actually getting properties in this case. So I think the question is, the next question should be, how do you use them? Yeah. So would they be part of your diversified portfolio? Yeah. So I don't own any REITs. Um, I might do through my ETFs, like so my ETFs, which own- You've probably got exposure to this kind of stuff through your super fund already. Yeah. Most of the large super funds own plenty of- infrastructure around Australia and overseas. So infrastructure is just a fancy word for buildings. Um, or, Peak buildings. Or like roads. That's I was looking at one of the, I think one of the large super funds, all of their holdings recently, and they, they owned a heap in central London yeah, of right. um, all sorts of buildings and office blocks. So I was like, oh, that's pretty sweet. Yeah. So <laughs> one of the things, uh, I mean, I could go on for all day about this, but one of the things that really gives me the ear, it's about that is some of the big super funds own the buildings outright. So they just completely own them. There's no other investors. So then they can just, and I, I probably can't say this, um, they pretty much just make up what it's worth. So these are called unlisted assets, meaning they're not on the stock exchange. So you can't see the price bouncing up and down because they're not listed and traded every day. Anyway, hold another thing. What would you use REITs for? Income generation is the number one thing that people use REITs for. They buy REITs because the REITs are required to pay out a certain amount of their earnings every year to maintain their trust status. So to be a trust, you have to pay the income. It's like if you have a family trust, someone has to pay tax, someone has to be responsible for that money. pay the income to the beneficiaries. Yeah, that's it. So it's the same with a REIT. You've got to pay that out. Um, So that's why you get the big juicy dividends from the REITs. Yeah, and they'll advertise, even like just looking at BWP Trust website, they'll put it right on the front page, what is their their dividends and things, their distributions. Yeah. So that's another word that Kate's just introduced there, which is important, is distributions is basically the same as dividends. It just comes from a different entity. So basically the same thing. They even write dividend slash distribution on their website. So they cover all bases yes, there. Just so you know. <laughs> okay, so income generation is a big reason people buy them. And then so you can also buy them for long-term growth. So when BWP listed, oh God, I had the numbers in front of me. I think I've got the prospectus right here, Kate. Here we go. So when BWP listed, and this is from 1998, it listed at $1 per unit. And now it's $4.10. $4.10. And they yes. paid out uh, a truckload of dividends and most distributions. And most of it is getting paid out in income. Yeah. And that's one of the big reasons that it has is because at the time, I think BWP had less than $200 million of property. There we go, $170 million um, of the value of its properties. But today, the value of its properties are $2.5 billion. That's uh, so Well more than 10 times the amount. <laughs> so that's the growth that you get. But 241 hectares. There you go. But the thing is, it pays out dividends. So that's money that's coming from rent. So it has to sustain that. And then it also has to keep enough money in the bank or use debt to buy more properties to grow. And it has to rely on the value of the properties going up, which as we all know, since the 90s, property in Australia has been a one-way ticket. Um, not saying that that can continue. And that's similar to if you were a landlord, you'd be hoping for capital growth on the property, but you'd also be hoping to get a tenant in and get some rental income. And that's why like retirees love having an investment property in their back pocket because it'll be hopefully paid off by that time and they'll just have a consistent 
rent check coming in. Yep, totally. So the only difference between a REIT and an investment property is there's typically a lot of properties in the REIT. A company manages the REIT and typically earns a fee. Um, you've and, got a bit of diversification. Yeah, you got to, and that's why the super funds own them. That's why, um, you know, when we talked about the risky buckets before, typically these investments are held in the defensive bucket, but only a small bit, not all of it. And I say typically, it depends. Some experts believe that REITs are actually riskier than what they are. Others believe they're actually kind of good. If you were to ask someone in 2007 what the greatest investment on the planet was, it probably was a REIT. But fast forward to now and people know that a heap of them went broke. And if if suddenly a lot of people want out, you can't move these off your books, these massive properties, Very hard. warehouses, they're hard to move off your books quickly, especially if you're in a, a market where people aren't wanting to buy big buildings, it might be very hard to take them off your books at a fair price, which often means they get left to last. Yeah. And I can't imagine that in Melbourne or Sydney in particular, uh, right now, I imagine there'll be a fair few REITs that are feeling the pain. Yeah. Because there was all these rent pauses and rent reductions last year. Companies just no students stop paying their lease. Okay. So what can you look for um, in in a REIT? I just say, look at the price relative to the NTA, which is the value of the properties. Look at the debt levels. So you can look at the debt levels when I say like, what does that mean? Look at the debt levels. Basically just see how much debt it has. Um, When I was at a, a in a former life, when I was an analyst, we looked at companies and we liked to see REITs with less than, I think it was 30% debt against the value of their properties, but some of them were a bit higher than that. Some of them were a bit lower. The thing is, if you go, if you start pushing the debt levels really higher as a REIT, um, really high, um, it doesn't take long for that to come back and bite you. So ideally the, you know, say less, less than 50% debt levels is what kind of, I guess is a general rule, but, um, the less, the better, the few, the less debt, the better. Um, the next thing I should say before I stuff up my English too much is um, the management team. So I would say if I'm looking for a REIT, check out who's on the board of directors. I'd want the management team to have a few battle scars to live through 2007, 2008. And would you also be looking for occupancy rate and maybe the tenants? Ah, yes, good point. If they're good quality tenants or they've yeah. got a, a company occupying most of the stores or whatever that you think, hey, that company's probably going to go bust in the next year or two. They might be struggling to find a tenant for a while. So that's that's a good point, um, Kate, really good point. So that's why I brought up Bunnings. Bunnings is the best example. If people know what Bunnings is and that's well, the I tenant. mean, if Bunnings goes under, they're going to have a lot of empty buildings. Well, just think like of Masters that. when that went broke, right? Like Masters had those giant warehouses. And I've seen some Coles pet stores and possibly about 50 other businesses fit into them now. But many of them, well, not many of them, but some of them would still be and empty, so, Yeah, it can take years to fill them or repurpose them. Like if they're very specific store or company in them or a factory, it can take a long time to refurbish and refit it to fit a new company. Yep. So you'd look at occupancy rate. BWP has an occupancy rate of 97%, which is really good. Um, naturally, because a lot of its um, tenants are Bunnings. I believe it's got some Harvey Normans that rent. The NTA, um, look at how it's valued. So that will be written in the company's annual report or the REIT's annual report. You can find out um, how often they get it valued and what the valuers say. Um, you can even go to the websites just to find out what's actually inside the REIT. You can go to the websites like BWP and Centre Group. Both do this. You can use a map. They have a map of where their properties are so you can see them, go down and visit them, etc. Just get a feel for them, get comfortable with it. Um, you can go check them out and obviously read the annual report. REITs for potential diversification. Kate asked me in the show notes. Um, yeah, maybe. Uh, I think, you know, you can have a small, like any, you do whatever you want really. But um, personally, I don't, I'm not in that income generating phase of my investment cycle, my life cycle, but I know plenty of investors that would include some REITs in their portfolio. And it's okay to have some, but just remember that REITs are linked to property. If you're 
career is linked to property, meaning your job, your income is linked to property, your supers with a property focused super fund, um, and you have investment properties or your primary residence. That's a lot of exposure to property already. So factor all of that in. Um, and remember, I'd probably put this in the defensive bucket, but if it's a really out there kind of REIT, like a small one, maybe it goes into the more the growth focused side of things because it's a bit more risky. Um, yeah, it's really horses for courses. I wouldn't use them for a big part of my portfolio, but that's just me. Yeah, and I believe I've got some property and infrastructure exposure through my robo-advisor. So, there you go. Um, I mean, they, they've put it as part of that diversified portfolio, a smaller portion, but it's it's just part of that overall portfolio. Do you know if they have that in kind of like the risky side of their bucket? Like, did they mention, like, do you remember why they put that in there? You don't have to know. I think it's those. probably more in the growth side because there is some global infrastructure as well. Yeah, so infrastructure can be a bit of a different one, even though it's, I said it's pretty much the same. Um, sometimes they can treat that differently as well. So this is one that kind of sits on the fence for some people. Some people say it's growth, some people say it's defensive. I say, the reason why I say it's not really a growth asset, but it kind of has the risk of a growth asset is because a lot of the growth that we've seen from properties and infrastructure over the past 20 years has come from falling interest rates. And interest rates are near zero or zero or below zero in some countries. So I don't know how much of that benefit is left. So, I mean, I think, you know, Bunnings is still going to pay rent, but, um, yeah, I just say just 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 be mindful with REITs. Um, you can use ETFs to invest um, in similar type products as well. But um, yeah, REITs are here, here. They've been here for a very long time. A very interesting conversation. If you have any comments on REITs, I'm sure there are some property experts, some valuers in our group. Please jump into the Facebook group. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes and you can continue the conversation. I mean, if the demand's there, we can get an expert on to talk yeah. about them in more detail. I know, I know a couple of really um, experienced REIT analysts. So if you want, um, I can get them on the show. But uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting conversation. Obviously, it comes back to the old property versus shares in a way. So it's probably a bit political, a bit um, hot. Um, maybe not a hot lick, Kate, but it's pretty close to it. <laughs> um, and in case you're wondering what the coffee was that I was drinking so rudely at the beginning of the show, it's Duke's. Duke's Coffee Roasters in Melbourne on Flinders Lane, just near Flinders. Soy milk again, Owen. Soy milk. Uh, Yeah, I love it. What have you got there? So Kate went to a... Just a normal... It's vacation. It's on Flinders Street, I believe. Yeah, Flinders Street. Melbourne. Yep. Um, Next to the IGA. Both really good coffees. I was reading, I think it's like an urban list. Both of these coffee shops rank in the top 10 in Melbourne. Um, So check them out. How bougie. Yes. There we go. Yes, we're very fine coffee drinkers. So... Kate, wonderful to have you on the show. We've got um, an Australian Investors Podcast episode that could be of interest to you if you're looking at portfolio construction. We'll put a link in the show notes. We've obviously got the courses, the FIRE course, which is Kate's brilliant work, um, the Ethical Investing course, which is reasonable work on my end. Um, not nearly as popular. <laughs> Damn it. Oh. But um, yeah, You'll and- get that one day, Ellen. <laughs> I'll catch up. Wonderful. Kate, as always, thanks for joining me on this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au.